I was asked to record for the Amir um, Tashem on the new school website. We're going to have hopefully a clearinghouse uh, of all the shiurim that we give in the community. Um, and this will be included as well. And uh, always on Zoom, uh, on Zoom shiurim, I want to thank those who, have their, who bravely have their cameras on. Uh, I know it's not always the easiest uh, to do so. Um, I certainly am guilty sometimes of, uh, of uh, sitting behind the, the, the dark stream, but it's good to be able to speak to people. Uh, so we're going to jump right into it. I want to, uh, I want to speak tonight about, about what, it, what it means when a society breaks down. The Talmud Bavli, Babylonian Talmud in Meseches Gittin, has a series. It, it occurs over a number of um, it occurs over a number of dapim in the Gemara, where the Gemara asks a very simple question. And the simple question that the Gemara asks is Alma of Daharetz. Why, why did we lose the land? Why did the Jewish people lose Eretz Yisrael? It's not talking specifically about why was the temple destroyed. It it gives other reasons for that. The reasons the temple was destroyed is because. Uh, Jewish people were guilty, unfortunately, of, of major sins. And the feather on top of all that, that broke the camel's back, was sinat chinam, was baseless hatred. The Gemara asks a further question that it tries to parse through telling a number of stories. And the question that it asks is, but really, why did we lose it? What were the chain of events? What were the things that happened that caused us to be kicked out of land and to still suffer in the gullus that we have right now. I think maybe a little bit of history is in place as well. It's important to note that the temple, second temple wasn't just destroyed in 70 CE, but that there was a period of time beforehand that the Romans were occupying the land and that even after the destruction of the temple, uh, there was another period of several decades that led to the Bar Kokhba revolt, the second war against the Romans, or what's called the sec- or sometimes called the third war. And there was a smaller conflict in between. The Bar Kokhba rebellion was really the final straw that broke the camel's back. And it's possible that there were more Jewish people that were lost and killed and depopulated uh, the land of Israel during that time, which occurred roughly 132 to 136 in the Common Era. But all of these events, all of these things, all these tragedies that we commemorate on Tisha B'Av, may it not happen this year. Uh, you shouldn't just say that as a cliche. We should really, truly hope that in, in, with every fiber of our being to not have to go through another Tisha B'Av, not the least because uh, I'm a bad faster. Um, but... But the point of all these stories is not just to teach history, but it's didactic. It's meant to explain to us how certain events, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. How the rhyming of events are things that we could point to, we could look out for in our own society, in our own lives, in our own communities, and to say, let's not repeat this. Let's not let this happen again. And let's learn from these stories. So I'm going to, we're going to hopefully illustrate this by talking about the second of the stories of the Agadot Churban. When I talk about the stories of Agadot Churban, there's really three main stories. Last year, uh, at a shir just like this, last year we talked about the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. To remind you, that was uh, uh, there was a, a party happening in Yerushalayim, and Bar Kamsa shows up. Kamsa was the one that was invited. And the rabbis uh, see that Bar Kamsa is being kicked out because he was not the one that received the invitation. 
and he sees that he's ridiculed. He offers to pay for the whole event, and he's ridiculed, and he is kicked out, absolute nightmare. And this individual goes and tells the Caesar, um, he says, you know, to get back at the rabbis, he's going to wound a carbon, wound a sacrifice, sent, and he's going to prove that the Jews are rebelling against the Caesar because that carbon will be rejected uh, due to a minor imperfection that, that was on either the lip or the eye of the, of the sacrifice that was sent. And, and that led one thing to another, uh, to the destruction, to the Caesar deciding, okay, it's time to uh, rise up against the Jews and destroy the temple. The second of those stories, the one that we're going to be doing tonight, is the subject of the title of this year, which is A Tale of Two Roosters. And I'm not going to tell you the story right now because we're going to get into it in a moment, but this story happens in a different city in Israel. The name of the city is Tur Malka, which is Aramaic for the city of the king, the mountain of the king, really. Tura is a mountain in Aramaic. The third story, which uh, I would say Mir Tzashem, but hopefully we don't have to learn on Tisha B'av or in preparation for Tisha B'av next year. The third story happens in the city of Beitar, and that story uh, is also a situation where a minor occurrence, a minor, a minor event snowballs into terrible destruction and tragedy and is seen as the forebearer and as the cause of, of the destruction of the temple. So I'm going to share, prepared a few slides for us, and, um, and hopefully uh, we won't do too much text because I want to, I want to be able to speak it out, but... But I want to talk for a moment about the power of stories and, and also the first story that I'm going to tell you tonight, which comes from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Who was Rabbi Nachman of Breslov? Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was a great-grandson of the founder of the Hasidic movement. He lived in Ukraine. He was born in 1772. He died in 1810. In his 38 years on this earth, he managed to create a revolution, a complete chidush, a, complete, a completely novel approach to what it means to be a Jew, what it means to live with doubt, what it means to struggle with faith and struggle in the service of God. And Rabbi Nachman was sui generis in so many ways, but one of the, one of the main ways that Rabbi Nachman was completely unique uh, amongst, amongst uh, Jewish leaders, rabbis uh, in, in all history, in all, in all time, was that Rabbi Nachman utilized the power of stories in communicating deep messages. Uh, Rabbi Nachman's student, his main student, uh, Rabbi Nassan of Nemerov, uh, quoted his Rebbe. He quoted Rabbi Nachman, uh, who said, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. He said that the world says, Ha'olam Omrin, the world says, Shesipure ma'asiot m'sugal l'shena. The world says that, you know, when we tell stories, it's to put children to sleep, it's to put people to sleep. And I said, Rabbi Nachman, that through telling stories, we wake people up. That stories, the power of, of literature, the power of narrative, is not something simply to lull us to sleep, but that it speaks deepest to human experience in a way sometimes that dry law, in a way that, uh, that, that, that straight didact, didactic speech cannot do. Stories, and this is the reason movies get to us, the, that, the great novels that we read, they get to us because they speak to human experience. Rabbi Nachman marshaled the power of stories to communicate deep spiritual and religious messages and was famous for that. And uh, Rabbi Nachman is not just appreciated in, in the Hasidic world for his stories, but Rabbi Nachman was seen 
as uh, there's a quote that comes from uh, Professor Dan Miron of Columbia University. He's one of the great scholars of Hebrew literature. And he writes that essentially all of modern Hebrew and Yiddish literature uh, owes a great debt of gratitude to Rabbi Nachman. He says, no exaggeration to say that every single, when I, I, I talk about Yosef Chaim Brenner, Shai Agnon, um, uh, Yehuda Amichai, all of these poets and, and storytellers owe their, owe their ability to teach these stories and to do so in a, in a distinctly Jewish idiom they owe it to Rabbi Nachman. Pinchas Sada, a great Israeli novelist, passed away a number of years ago and was the Bialik Prize laureate. He wrote, despite not having imagined it to be so, not a, uh, not a chassid, uh, I have finally arrived at the conclusion that it's not only true that Rabbi Nachman was perhaps the greatest Hebrew storyteller, but perhaps one of the greatest storytellers of all time. So a little preview is that we're going to dive into the Gemara and we will see the second story that I mentioned before by taking a look had a very famous parable of Rabbi Nachman's. In fact, you may have heard of this parable, but before that, and, uh, and I should have said this at the beginning, it, uh, goes with, it goes with saying that all of our learning, all of our Talmud Torah tonight, and our preparation uh, for Tisha B'Av, and hopefully really the messages that you, that you take away from this, the messages of how to understand other people, how to practice Ahavat uh, Chinam, baseless love, um, Beit HaMikdush was destroyed for baseless hatred, and it's a common bon mat that it will be rebuilt with baseless love, to love unconditionally, to love each other uh, without reservations. Uh, all of that should be dedicated uh, in the schus of Rafuah Shlema for Karmiyah Chaya Hadas Bat Tzipora Miriam. And she should have a Rafuah Shlema B'Soch Shacholi Yisrael, and it should happen uh, speedily. It should happen very, very soon. Okay. So here's the story for Rabbi Nachman. And you know what, maybe, maybe what I'll do is, instead of, um, instead of just having text in front of us, I'm going to tell you the story outside. It's important to know that Rabbi Nachman always said stories throughout his life. Towards the end of Rabbi Nachman's life, uh, two years before he died, he died at the age of 38, two years before he died, Rabbi Nachman said that he has had enough of trying to teach people in the ordinary way and that now I'm going to tell over stories and I'm going to teach people through stories. And of course, Rabbi Nachman moved to the city of Uman towards the end of his life where he's buried now. There's a pilgrimage of tens of thousands of people from around the world uh, to his uh, kever in Uman, Ukraine, every year on Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Nachman felt that the way to reach people there, some of whom who were distant from observance and distant from, uh, from being Hasidim, the way to do so would be through telling stories. And uh, Rabbi Nachman told parables throughout his life. This particular parable is contained in a little appendix to the Sipurei Ma'asiyot uh, that's called Sipurei Mumashalim, parables and stories. Maybe you've heard it. If you haven't heard it, it's an amazing story. It goes like this. Rabbi Nachman says that there was once a king who ruled over a vast kingdom, was very powerful, and he had a ben yechidi, he had, he had one son, and this son was going to inherit the kingdom from the king, this prince, uh, there were a lot of hopes and dreams that were pinned on him, and the prince, so, nafal alav shiga'on, says Rabin Achman, he seemed to have gone a little crazy, a little insane, and he thought that he was a rooster, and what this prince did is he took off all of his clothing and he got under the table in the palace 
and he would bark like a rooster, he would squawk like a rooster, and he would not sit at the table and eat food like everybody, and he would only eat the crumbs from under the floor, and the king is confounded by what his son, what his inheritor, what this, uh, what this prince is doing. The king brings all of the advisors that he possibly can to try and heal his son, to, to work with him, to uh, whatever therapy is going to work to restore his son back to Shviut, back to the way that he was before, and to, uh, to, have him, to have him go back to being the prince and not a rooster under the table. It's embarrassing. All of the advisors of the king, the greatest doctors and, and advisors and wise men in the kingdom came uh, to no avail. Nothing worked. Force, yelling, kind of, didn't matter. Please, didn't work. Finally, there was one individual that came that was not from the kingdom. Certain wise man comes and he asked the king for permission to treat the prince. The king says, sure, we've tried everything and it hasn't, uh, hasn't been successful. Do what you can. This distinguished visitor promptly removes his own clothes and gets under the table together with the prince. And the prince, the rooster prince, looks at the man and says, what are you doing here under the table? And the advi- this wise man says, don't you know, I'm a rooster also. And there they sat for days and they, ah, Ed, you have the book. There they sat under the table. There they sat for, for days and they acted as roosters do, this prince and the wise man picking off the, the crumbs off the floor. And eventually the wise man, having earned the respect and the trust of the rooster prince, makes a signal and has them uh, throw down clothing, uh, throw down pants for them. And the advisor puts on pants and the prince looks at him and says, what are you doing? He says, no, don't you know a rooster can also wear pants? It's also okay. And a shirt comes, a rooster can also wear. They go like this for some time and then the wise man, he signals with his finger and they bring him normal food under the table. The rooster looks at the wise man eating from the food and says, what are you doing? The wise man says, don't you know, a rooster can also have a nice meal as well. And this continues until the wise man finally gets up and sits at the table and the prince, the rooster prince, is able to sit at the table with him. He says, we could be roosters and we could also sit at the table. And in this way, he was able to bring the rooster prince, this, this rooster, turkey prince, in some, uh, in some retellings of the story, was able to bring him back to the table and to, and to heal him, as it were. Now, Rabbi Nachman leaves the story cryptically like that. Uh, he doesn't explain what the postscript to the story is. And hopefully, if we have enough time, I want, to, I want to tell you what I think the postscript to the story is. But that's a story that Rabbi, that's a parable that Rabbi Nachman told. And at the end, he says, V'hamaskil yavin. And if you're wise, you will understand. Now, there's all kinds of different interpretations of the story. I'll tell you one that we're not going to be using tonight. One of the interpretations of the story is that what Rabbi Nachman is trying to evince here is the notion of what it means to be a teacher, uh, specifically to be a tzaddik, a righteous leader of students of Hasidim, is that you cannot remain on a lofty stage and think that you're better than the people under your tutelage, that sometimes you have to go down under the table together with them in order to bring them back up. That's one interpretation, but that's not the one that we're going to use. I, I want to jump directly from that story to another story of roosters. Now, I, I should add that this was originally 
uh, an original idea of mine. I subsequently saw and listened to Shiorm of Rabbi Ari Khan from Barilan University and Yeshiva Haratzion, who, who about 15 years ago uh, ha- made a similar connection. So uh, as much as I would like to say that, that I uncovered this idea of linking these two stories, uh, certainly there were those who were much smarter and better who came before me in doing so. So here we find ourselves, and here we're going to learn a little bit of text. This is from the Gemara in Gitin, Daf Nun Zayin Amid Bet. Now, I want to frame for a second. We ask in the Gemara, Alma of the Haaretz. What was the reason that we lost the land? The rabbis are trying to give us an accounting, and they are not giving us a strictly historical accounting. Rather, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, to suss out the reasons for why such a catastrophe can occur. What is it that causes a society as beautiful and as wonderful as Jewish society in the second and first temple periods where we had a Beit HaMikdash and we had millions of people that would come to, for Aliyah Regel? What could cause a society like that to, so, so, to be so ruined, to fall into such catastrophe? And I think that we could also answer a much more contemporary question. We might be less concerned, less jog about something that happened thousands of years ago. Madahava hava, what happened happened. The base of Mikdash is destroyed. We have to build a new one. We have to we have to endeavor to try and bring back. But I think by understanding what these stories are trying to communicate, we can come to a more sophisticated understanding of what exactly it is that we need to repair and what kind of failings we need to see in our own communities and society in order to be able to say that is that is one of the things that the rabbis pointed to. The sophistication of the stories that the rabbis tell in the Gemara, uh, when I was younger, I would scoff at it. You know, there's exaggerations and there's uh, all kinds of far-fetched things happening that don't seem to make any sense. Uh, I would say like this, parenthetically, the more time one spends reading the stories, the Agadatas in the Gemara, reading them with an adult perspective and reading it with patience, the more brilliance, the more wisdom comes out and you truly understand why this is a, a holy thing. So this is the second story. The first one was Kamsa and Bar Kamsa that happened to Yerushalayim. And this is a story about Tormalka. We're going to read it in Hebrew. You have uh, a translation of English on the side. It's not too long of a story. And you'll see what I mean when I say that uh, it sounds a little bit ridiculous. Because of a rooster and a hen, the city of Tormalka, the king's mountain, was destroyed. Now, I should add that there is some discussion as to where exactly this city of Tormalka is. Uh, in the Tosefton Shaviz, it says the Tormalka is somewhere on the road between Ein Gedi. I don't know if anybody here has ever hiked Ein Gedi, if you've done that hike. Somewhere on the road between Ein Gedi and Yericho. So somewhere around the Dead Sea area. So that's uh, what the Tosefton Shaviz says is the location of Tormalka. And that also would, would, would jive well with the notion that when Moshe Rabbein, when Moses looked out from, his, uh, from the mountain on the other side of the Jordan and he saw Hahar Hatov Hazev Halevanon, that this was the good mountain that Moshe saw. There are other opinions that say that Tormalka is actually somewhere near Betar, somewhere in the outskirts of Jerusalem towards the south in what would be modern day Gush Etzion, uh, wherever it is it is clear that it was a metropolis. It was a city of opulence. Rabbi Yochanan says, and this is an exaggeration, the rabbis used the number 600,000 as, as a number to indicate immense, immense size and population. Rabbi Yochanan says that Tur Malka had 600,000 uh, communities, villages in it, and each of those had an, as many people as left Egypt. Now, that would come out to tens of millions of people, and that is certainly not the, not, not, not the case. 
But what's, what's clear is that it was a massive city. It was a city that was built up, that enjoyed some degree of prosperity. And even during the Roman occupation, people were carrying out their lives uh, as, as usual. Now, in Tur Malka, there was an interesting custom. What would they do in Tur Malka? So when there was a wedding, imagine doing this nowadays at the Marina del Rey or, uh, or at the Italian center. You know, you have a wedding and you bring out a hen and a rooster into the middle of the dancing and they point to the chatan and kala and say, you should be as fruitful, you should have as many children as this rooster and hen symbolize. That was the symbol, that was the symbol. this was their thing. This is, doesn't appear in the Torah. This was what they did. This was the custom in Tormalka. Now here's what happens. Yom Echad. And whenever the Gemara says Yom Echad, it's pretty safe to say that, that something bad might happen. Yom Echad. One day, there was a Roman troop that passed by. Uh, a troop over here, uh, many Roman soldiers passed by. And uh, the Aramaic here is a beautiful, uh, ancient Aramaic. And they took the precious rooster and hen. They stole it. The residents of the city attacked them. So the residents beat up the soldiers. Now, that's a pretty bold thing to do to an occupying army. The residents of the city beat up the soldiers, and the soldiers came to the emperors and says, and this is the same language that appears in all three of the stories, in Kamsa Bar Kamsa, in the story of the cedars of the city of Betar, and in this story, the Jews are rebelling against you. Asa Alaihu, the emperor, has to put down the rebellion, and he comes against them in war. There was a certain individual in the king's mountain, in this city, Turmalka, whose name was Bardaroma. There are actually some scholars that associate Bardaroma with none other than Bar Kochva himself. Shimon ben Koziba. To have a kafetz mila. Now he was a magnificent warrior. He could jump the distance of a mill, a great distance. And he was able, katubahu, he was able to kill many of the Romans that had been arrayed against Turmalka to avenge, you know, beating up this Roman troop before him. Now the Caesar says something like this. The Caesar says, Shakle Kaiser Latage. The Caesar takes his crown, Tage is a crown, the Osveara, he puts it on the ground, and the Caesar issues the following prayer to God. Amar Ribone de Almakule, master of the entire universe. Ine Khalach Latimsalu Gavra Lidide the Machusabiyadi the Khad Gavra. He's referring to himself. He says, Don't give over my kingdom. Don't give, over, uh, don't give over myself and my army in the hands of one person. Now, it, it's, we'll come, I want to finish the story before I make some observations about this. Actually, So what happened in the end? Well, it was Bardaroma's own mouth that got him into trouble, something I can relate to very well. His own mouth got him into trouble. He quotes from Psalms. He says, God, have you not rejected us? Why don't you go forth with us out to battle? And the Gemara says, that's what caused, that's what caused Bar Daroma to fall. It was that statement. David nami amar hachi. It comes from Psalms. David said it. He said, David atmui kamit mal. David atmui kamit mal. David was asking a question. 
King David was asking God, please come and fight with us, fight our wars with us, stand on our side. But Bardaroma, Bardaroma was, was, was speaking as a statement of fact. I'm the only one that's needed. I'm powerful enough to do this without your help. You don't go out, God, I'm going to do it for you. And it was that arrogance that caused his downfall. He says, Sakisa, he came to the bathroom, Asa Drakona, a snake, a, a viper came, and he was uh, disemboweled by the, by the snake attack and he died. And the emperor said, look, obviously a great miracle has occurred for me. My main antagonist, this, this impressive warrior has been killed. I'm going to leave Tur Malka alone. I don't need to go fight against them anymore. I'll leave them alone. We'll let the rooster and the hen go. What happens? Did the people of Tur Malka react in a normal way? Not really. They partied. They leapt around, they were dancing, they drank, they lit candles. So many of them that you could look at a penny, you could look at a coin a mile away and be able to see it in the dark from the lights of their partying. Now the Caesar sees this, the emperor sees this, says, Amar The Jews are mocking me. I let them go. I let this thing go. I was able to say, okay, let bygones be bygones, the rooster and the hen, what happened, happened. And then he says, now this is how they're reacting? Hadras Elihu, he goes... And he, and he decides now to do battle. And we'll finish with this in the story. Amr of Asi. Rav Asi says this was what the destruction was like. Tlat meya alfe shlifi saifa alu malka. It wasn't just one gunda. It wasn't just one troop of Romans that came. 300,000 soldiers with drawn swords came. The entire army. The katluba tlasayomi. And there were three days of massacre in Tormalka. Utlasi lelute in three nights. And the bolded section over here. And this is going to be a key. On one side of the mountain of Tormalka, where the massacre hadn't gotten to yet, people were still partying. They were still rejoicing. And if you could see on like a split screen, I mean, the cinematic quality is, is, is impressive. On the other side, on the other side is, this, is this massacre. On the other side is this destruction. On the other side, people are being massacred, and that was the story of the Tarnagolas and the Tarnagolsa. Now, the very first observation I want to make about this story, and uh, perhaps you could help me, is that only one person in the entire story seems to be religious, seems to be a person that, that brings God into the picture. Now, the individual that does that is the person we would least expect to be doing that. It's not the Jews of Turmalka, it's not whatever the rabbinic leadership was, it wasn't Bartiroma. In fact, Bartiroma is seen as somebody that's challenging God, mocking God. How come you're not going out with me? I'm the one that's taking care of the Romans on my own. But it's the only person who utters a word of religious, something that could be seen as a tefillah, as a prayer, is the Caesar. He's the one that, that reaches out to God. The second thing that I want to point out over here is that it seems that this story, together with the Bar Kochva story, together with the Bar Kamsa story, and together with the story that comes after it in Betar, seems to come from a small misunderstanding, an event that could have been let go, and because of a series of unfortunate events that happen afterwards, it snowballs, and it becomes this terrible thing. It becomes this terrible destruction and... and, and and, and a complete massacre of one of the great cities in Israel. The first point that I want to make 
is that what the rabbis are telling us with these stories is that everything that we does, everything that we do, especially in the realm of the interpersonal, creates a butterfly effect. We have to understand that when we interact with other people, and certainly when it comes to interacting with an occupying army or people that are are erstwhile oppressors, that we have to be very careful with how we react. To do things impulsively or to do things without taking any eitzah, without without thinking about the consequences, the hashlachot that come from our actions, so that could lead to terrible destruction. Furthermore, we see, and this is an insight that comes from Yehuda Amital, who is a great uh, expositor of, of Agadita, and the Gemara is uh, the, fa- the founding Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Haaretzion. He points out that the three, story, the three cities in these three stories are Yerushalayim, then you have Tormalka, and then you have Beitar. Each of these three cities brings to the fore one of the, one of the elements of a healthy, functioning, stable society, Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, is the spiritual seat of it. The second, Tormalka, is the seat of, I mean, they're able to party, they have, they have so much joy, it's, it's population, it's opulence, it's luxury, it's, it's, it's a, a place of commerce. Tormalka symbolizes, symbolizes that element of a society. Finally, the next story is the story of Beitar. Beitar is, as we see in the third story, Beitar is the city that is associated with security. It was the, re- it was the place that Bar Kochva lived. It was the place that was the seed of the, of the rebellion against the Romans after the destruction of the temple. So we have spirituality, population and commerce, and then we have security. Each of these three cities is undone by its own misunderstanding that spirals out of control. The misunderstanding that spirals out of control, that destroys our spirituality, is kamsa and bar kamsa, is people not treating each other with respect, is, is, is sinat chinam, is baseless hatred, is, is the ridiculous inefficacy of the rabbis to be able to stand up to it and to put a stop to that. And in this story, we see that what undoes this population, what undoes the people of Turmalk that leads to their destruction, is holding on to what might be considered a, a, a silly, an almost meaningless gesture of having this rooster in a hand, something nice, something cute at their weddings, and not letting that go. And furthermore, not just not letting that go, but gloating over the Romans when the, they think that the Romans have left because of them. And I think that it's important to show that the Gemara not so subtly points out that these minhagim, these customs that they had, that they were so concerned about, that they had to go and fight, they could have just let it go, that they were so concerned about, had taken precedence over, over any sort of, of rational thought, over any sort of, of, of patience and understanding, and had, and had taken the ikar, had, taken, had become the main thing and led to their destruction. The second thing that I want to point out is that the Tarnagol and the Tarnagolis over here, I think, is consciously being referenced by Rabbi Nachman. And this is hopefully what we're going to bring out towards the rest of it. We see that small misunderstandings have a way of spiraling out of control. We see that little events and an inability for two people to understand each other. In the case of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, it's the host and the rabbis and Bar Kamsa. In this case, it's the people of Turmalka, it's Bar Daroma, it's the Caesar failing to understand them. It's them failing to understand the situation. These little misunderstandings come from an inability of people to see where the other person is coming from. The inability of people to look at things from the opposite side. I teach students a lot. I say that there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is, I feel so sorry for you. That's so terrible that that happened. I can recognize that that's bad. And I sympathize with you. 
Empathy is something much more profound. Empathy says not only, is, not only am I sorry for that thing that happened to you, but I feel your pain. I am trying to come into space. I cannot feel it in the same way, but I am trying my best to see things from your perspective. I'm trying to walk the mile in your shoes. It seems that for a healthy society to function, what the rabbis are teaching us with all these stories, for, to keep things from spiraling out of control, to keep things from getting to a state where a misunderstanding about a rooster and a hen or a misunderstanding about an invitation to a party that it could lead to terrible destruction and violence and suffering, that it comes at every single stage from people endeavoring to put themselves in other people's positions. And even when those people have the exact same, almost identical names like Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, or when it's people as far apart as the Jews of Tormalka and the Caesar, everything starts with failing to understand situations and failing to understand other people with an impetuousness that sometimes we think we have that says, I understand everything that's going on over here. I have all the information that we need. It's when we fail to account for that, when we fail to put ourselves in other people's shoes in that way, that society starts to fall apart, that we start to lose trust. And when we start to lose trust, when we start to, when we start to be fearful or wary or suspicious of everything around us, so that's when a society is eventually going to be weakened to the point that one side of the mountain can be partying and one side of the mountain, and the Gemara is very deliberate with its description of, of the joy that's happening. I mean, how grotesque is this? On one side of Tormalka, they are rejoicing. And on the other side of the Tormalka, they are being massacred. Now, I already want to tie this into Rabbi Nachman's story of the two roosters. I don't think that Rabbi Nachman was, was being, I, th- I, I think Rabbi Nachman was being deliberate with the use of this motif, with the use of this image. I want to show you one way in which I think that is. The entire story that we started off with, with the rooster prince, is a story about what it means to get under the table with somebody else. The wise man could have tried like everybody else, use all the wisdom, he could talk therapy, he could do everything that would have been normal. Instead, he chose to lower himself, to debase himself to a certain extent, to get under the table and to see from the rooster prince's perspective what things look like under the table, to see what it might feel like to be... Bar comes on the other side of that party offering to pay to see what it might feel like to be the people getting massacred on one side and the people partying on the other side. When there's that failure, when the disconnect that this story brings out between, a, uh, between one city, the disconnect is deliberate and it's tied in. And I think that this is what Rabbi Nachman is trying to bring out in the story. That the secret to bringing people out from under the table is to get under there with them, is to try and see things from their perspective. That is what we would call bina. That is what we would call not an impetuous, knee-jerk, instinctive reaction and understanding. Let's go fight the Romans. They took our symbols. Let's go attack them. Let's show them who's boss. Let's kick this person out of the party. He's my enemy. He wasn't invited. Let's go attack the Romans in the last story, which we haven't talked about yet. Let's go attack the Romans because they chopped down our trees in Betar. Instead of being impetuous, it's important to understand even with our enemies, even with people that we, especially with people that we disagree with. It's easy with people we agree with. Let's try and see, let's gain this out from their perspective. You know how I know, you know how I know, or I think I know, that that is what the symbol of the Tarnagal and the Tarnagal to this motif is? It's because we say it every single day in tefillah. Take a look at this. Let's go to our next slide. Our next slide says, and I know uh, our time is short. 
Our next slide, I think just before we get to that, there's a beautiful line over here from Julia Watts Belzer, who's a professor at the University of Washington, St. Louis of Talmud. She writes in her book, Rabbinic Tales of Destruction, printed by the Oxford University Press. She sums up the story that we just read that the Bavli intertwines opulence with oblivion. The bright lights of a lavish feast black out the violence on the other side of the mountain, leaving the revelers unable to see the cost of luxury. I would say, and maybe this might be the most uh, radical thing I would say, I would say often our own luxury, our own desire to be pampered is the greatest impediment. Our comfortability is the greatest impediment to getting under the table, to taking off the clothes and getting down, with their, getting down under there with the rooster prince, to being able to recognize what's an important symbol and what's the main thing of maintaining our society, to recognize the difference between a good party that might have somebody that's, uh, that, that, that doesn't belong there, is dragging it down a little bit, that's ruining the, the conversation at the table, and what it means to reject that person, and, and, and what, we, what we lose when we place comfortability and our luxury ahead. And I think that, uh, that Professor Bel- Watts-Belzer hones in directly on this point in her analysis of the story. But how do I know that the rooster is a sign of the bina, of the deep understanding to be able to do this? So I want to take us to a blessing that said every single day, the very first blessing of the daily liturgy. Of, of the daily liturgy. Baruch atah Hashem, blessed are you God, Elokeinu Melchalam, master of the universe, hanotein l'sechvi vina l'havchin b'in yom laila. What's that blessing about? It's thanking God for the rooster that, that, that I don't know what it's called, that, that cockadoodle doos in the morning. I don't know what we call that. that, that, that the rooster's call in the morning. And that call in the morning allows us to be mavchin, bina, a wisdom to distinguish between day and night. That the rooster, this symbol, is also a symbol of the most basic understanding between day and night, between the lights of the party and between the darkness of the destruction on the other side. Sechvi is another name for a tarnagolist, another name for, tar- for a rooster, and is associated with bina. It's associated with being able to make good distinguishing calls between right and wrong and be able to understand things slowly and deliberately. Don't just take my word for it. The Chafetz Chaim writes in the Mishnah Brura that the heart, Nikra Sechvi, the heart is called, is likened to a rooster in the language of the Mikra, in the language of the Torah. Dichtiv, it's written in Eov, in the book of Job, which is a book that's very apropos for the time that we find ourselves in. O mi natan l'sechvi vina. Right, God, who, who is the one that gave the rooster understanding? Who gave the rooster this basic ability to distinguish between night and day? To be able to have an open heart, to be able to allow that, that, that unwelcome guest into the meal, to be able to, to let a minor injustice of stealing the rooster and the hen go, to be able to understand what's going on on the other side of the mountain, to be able to, to, to recognize the other and to get under that table, the lave, that's the open heart. And that's the heart, the understanding heart. And that bina is the basic wisdom, is the basic understanding that allows us to understand the difference, the most fundamental difference between night and day. Now I'm going to finish with this because I have three minutes left. Rabbi Nachman told another story, a harrowing story, and we'll end with this story. I'm going to read it to you because it's very short. And I think that this is what happens to the prince and the, wise, and the wise man. There's another story that Rabbi Nachman told, which is quite famous as well. It's called The Tainted Wheat. And The Tainted Wheat is a story that's recounted in Koch Ve'or. And it's Hamashal Mehatfua. 
Shepam achas, one time, Amar ha-melech le-o'avo asheni le-melech. The king said to his, to his greatest, most trusted advisor, the sheni le-melech, the, the vizier, the second in command, the person he was closest with. Ba'asher ani chozeh ba-kochavim, ro'eh ani shekol ha-tvua sh'yigadel b'shana azot, mi sh'yachal mimena, yiyeh na'asem eshukah. I could see that the crop this year is a bad crop. And anybody that's going to eat from it, says the king, is going to go crazy. They're going to, they're going to lose their minds. In Cain, Yitakis Eitza, he says, tell me what to do. What do we do in this situation? All of the grain is going to, is going to be poisoned. The Analo and the advisor says to him, the wise advisor says, Let's uh, let's set aside for me and you a store of grain that we'll, we won't have to eat from the tainted wheat, right? It's a Yosef kind of idea. Let's save, let's stockpile so we won't have to eat from the tainted wheat. Analo HaMelech, the king says in Cain, But if so, we'll be the only people that will be of sound mind and everyone else will be crazy. Az and we'll be the crazy ones. We'll be different than everybody else. But we can't even prepare for everybody else. And then we're going to be crazy. So the answer is that we too must eat from the tainted wheat and go insane and lose our minds. Let's make a mark on our foreheads. To at least know that we're crazy to at least be aware that we've lost it. When I look at your forehead, when you look at my forehead, we'll at least know who we are, we'll at least be aware. I want to suggest that this is the coda to the story of the rooster prince and that wise advisor. That the wise advisor stayed and the rooster prince became the king and once again they were in a situation where it was them and the rest of the world. I think what Rabbi Nachman is telling us is that we live in a world that sometimes feels crazy. We live in a world that sometimes challenges us with things that bring us way out of our comfort zone. Our roosters and hens get taken. Our meals and parties are interrupted by uninvited guests, people that are antagonists. Sometimes we find ourselves under the table or we see that what we want is under the table. The answer in a crazy world like that is to be able to practice a kind of radical empathy a kind of radical forbearance and patience to look to the rooster, to look to our heart and to try and practice Bina and to be able to be the person that says, even though we too have eaten from the tainted wheat, even though we too are together with everybody else in this mess, there's no Beis HaMikdash, suffering seems to be ceaseless, it's harder and harder to find good news and, and the gullus, the exile gets longer and longer with every passing Tisha B'Av. The answer may be that Rabbi Nachman is trying to tell us with getting under the table or making a mark for ourselves to remind us that even though we're part of the same craziness, that we have to recognize at least our craziness. And the story of Tur Malkam, what the rabbis are telling us of Darts is that the way to get it back is to remember what happens on the other side of the mountain, is to try and identify, is to try and be part and parcel of the suffering of others, 
even when we disagree, even especially when we disagree, and even when we feel that they might be acting crazy to say, let me try and see things from their perspective. Let me practice a radical empathy. And if that's the reason, if the lack of that is the reason that of the Haaretz, that we lost the land, Emir Tzashem, by reversing that and practicing in this way, we'll be able to recover the land fully, to bring back Kibbutz Galiot and to build the, Beit, the third Beit HaMikdash and to put an end to all suffering, to all enmity between us and our families, our communities, the world and the nations of the world and to be able to enter a time of true peace. We should know no more tsar, no more suffering and no more struggle with the coming of Mashiach, Mir Hashem. And I hope to be able to greet uh, Mashiach together with all of you. Thank you so much.